All right, we are in part nine of the series called uh, Root Cause. And again, if you've been on this journey, you know the concept. If it's your first time with us, then we're studying through this book of Colossians, which Paul and Timothy wrote to a church that were basically helping them kind of new in their faith. It was a church they had never been to, people they had never met. And so they were kind of giving them a basic guideline of engaging in the Christian faith. And one of the the cores of this book is this idea of you can't just call yourself a Christian and say, I want to be a Christian, and then all of a sudden all the righteous things start showing up in your life. It actually takes intent, putting seeds into the ground, cultivating them, growing them, putting intent behind things to experience righteousness in your life. Holy living and exceptional living, living that brings about pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope in our life. And when we started this series, we started, uh, we had these little seed packets that we handed out and challenged people to actually try to go home and cultivate and grow something. And over the past few months, uh, you've seen this journey that we've been going on in our house. That was week one, a bunch of nothing. And you're going to see up until yesterday, you can keep scrolling through, Jana, uh, of where we've been. And we're growing uh, chives, or chives cilantro and tiny bit of oregano and uh we have decided this past week we're going to harvest this coming week uh we're going to take them and uh next week you'll actually get to see with what we do with what we harvest and so uh anyways we are on this journey and i I say every week this is uh a reminder like i will wake up like two days two days from watering and i'll be like oh my gosh i haven't watered my chives how are my chives doing, you know? And I have to, like, I'll run in and check on them, check the soil. It just has been a great reminder to me of how I need to cultivate and put intentionality in something as simple as trying to grow herbs and spices, that I need to do the same thing in my own spiritual life. And we've had this beautiful seed packets of righteousness that we've looked at, of hope that leads to salvation, wisdom that leads to holiness, submission to peace, meekness, to mercy, community, to assurance, diligence, to abundance, security, to freedom. And last week, we looked at prudence, the ability to make wise, right decisions, and how that leads us to having confidence in our faith. And as we ended with the idea of confidence, like when you have confidence, you're kind of riding high. Our seeds are flourishing. They're growing, producing fruit. But why do we actually need this confidence? Often we use our confidence in things to show off, impress others, say, look at me. But the truth is confidence is not a tool of self-promotion or PR stunt. In our social media world that is dominated by comparison, we show confidence based on how we project our lives to others. How we use symbols of success and affluence to try to garner influence, fame, or just likes, follows, and comments. But this is not why we should be growing confidence in our life, to show off. This next passage is going to show us why we need this confidence. Not for self-promotion, but more out of self-protection. Because guess what's coming into your life? In the midst of all this pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope that we experience, I can tell you what else is coming. Difficulties, challenges, trials, especially in our relationships and in the relationships we have with those around us. And this is what Paul leads us to next. The end of chapter 3 and the first verse in chapter 4 are an advanced course 
and how to navigate relationships of every kind. Katie and I are members of a gym, and we'll go and take some uh, yoga or Pilates classes sometimes to stretch and, and do kind of different things. And every class that we go to, they always say, well, here's the basic pose. If you're a little advanced, try this. And like you reach around and grab a foot and try to balance. And then like if you're really advanced, do this. And like that's, you know, somebody's on a tiptoe and one pinky, like doing all this stuff. We, we were in a class Friday night and they were doing that. And I'm telling you, I stayed in the basic pose. Katie moved on to the more advanced. There was a girl up in the front row that was like contorting herself into things I'd never seen before. And like this advanced flexibility in yoga. Many of us have only developed truly the basic tools of dealing with relationships and relationships with our spouse, our parents, kids, family, friends, coworkers, bosses, employees. And just knowing the basics isn't enough. Because every day we're going to face relationship challenges. Think about it. When you're asked the question, how was your day? Typically our answer is measured in terms of how much we either enjoyed or struggled through the relational connections of our life. Right? You can have a great life circumstance, but horrible relationships, and every day can feel like hell. Or you can have crummy circumstances and great relationships, and every day can feel like heaven. So over the next few verses, Paul and Timothy are going to lead us through an advanced course on relationship management. And they're going to give us the seed to success in relationships and the roots that must be present in order to have the flexibility of a yoga master to manage and experience beauty through almost any relationship. So let's start by looking at the seed that will bring about these results. Colossians 3.17 is where we're going to start. It'll be on the screen today, or if you have your Bibles, you can access it directly. But it says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word and deed. What are we doing with these words and deeds? Right, we're impacting people with them. It's how we do relationships with people in our lives, people we connect with on a regular basis. While it may be nice to do words, say nice words and do good deeds in the name of the Lord to strangers or through random encounters, what the writers are talking about here are doing things in the name of the Lord to those we have the most intimate, authentic, and consistent relationships with. So what does it mean to, in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him? Often I've heard this passage taught as to do it as if you were doing it unto God, right? Maybe you don't like the person you're dealing with. Maybe they're getting on your nerves, they're wrong, they're irrational, they're irritating. So just act like they're Jesus and love them anyway. Grin and bear it. And while this might be a principle we can hold on to at times, I don't think that that is what is being taught in this specific passage. Instead, it says to do things in the name of the Lord with thanks, with gratitude. If I do something in someone else's name, I'm doing my best to represent exactly who they are, to speak the same words that they spoke, to communicate the same message that they would. The ambassadors that we have as a country to foreign nations They don't sit there in their office and come up with their own ideas of how they want to deal with that country. 
They are given specific talking points by the administration that say, this is what we want you to say to them. Repeat this exactly. They don't get their own ideas. They are being an exact representation. So how is it that God has spoken and dealt with us through Christ? What is it that we have that we get to give thanks for that God has done for us? The answer to that question is also the seed that we need to plant in our lives in order to build off of this confidence we have to deal with relationships. And it's the seed in the idea of grace. Grace is the starting point of every relationship. God's inclination toward you and toward me is one of grace, which means when he sees us, when he deals with us, even when he punishes us, it is out of a spirit of wanting good for us. Bible says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own works. Salvation is a free gift of God, not the work of human hands. It says his grace is sufficient for us, which means it is never ending. And the verses go on and on and on describing the beautiful grace of God. Throughout the whole of scripture, the most prevalent, consistent, and defining quality of God of the Bible is grace. And grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. It isn't given on occasion or inconsistently. It isn't given when God's in a good mood or happy with you. It is given based on his unchanging character, and it is actually given at our worst, not our best. And this is the seed that must be at the center of every one of our relationships. Without grace, in word and deed, in the name of Jesus, then relationships will deteriorate, become damaging and destructive in our lives. You can probably think of a few in your own life that have done that. Where grace has not abounded and has become damaging and destructive in your life. We need grace. Other people need grace. It is the magic potion for imperfect people to be able to deal with other imperfect people. So how do I get this seed of grace planted in my life? I wish it was as easy as me saying, hey, pick up a seed, pack it on the way out. There's some grace. Put it in your heart. You'll be all good to go. I wish it was that easy. But the way that, that you and I experience grace, because as much as I'd love to hand it to you, it's something you have to directly receive from God. The way that you can express grace, plant this seed, is first to experience grace, God's grace. So how do you and I experience God's grace? I want to walk you through the journey I first went on when I understood God's grace and, and help you. Maybe you've been on this journey. Maybe you're trying to understand this grace of God. But grace with God starts with understanding certain things about me and then some understanding things about God. And here's how we receive grace. One is realize that you and I are broken. We are broken people. That's probably not a surprise to anyone in here. You know that about yourself. But if you look around, everybody else in here is broken too. You, you need grace. You can't receive it if you don't think you need it. Grace cannot grow in a heart that's arrogant, proud, vain, or conceited. If you think you are never in need of grace, then you are spiritually blind and you need healing to open up your eyes to your own broken condition. And it's okay to admit that you're broken because we all are. And the second thing we have to realize is this, not only am I broken, but I am not a savior. You're not a savior. Realize that you cannot fix yourself or provide the pathway of your own salvation. Our brokenness isn't remedied by harder work and more intentionality. 
Broken things left to themselves don't get better. They get more broken. I wish if I broke something, I could just leave it and wake up the next morning and it would be fine. It's not the way it happens. Broken things become more broken, left them to themselves. That's what we have to realize about ourselves. We are broken and we cannot fix ourselves. We are not our own savior. But there's some beautiful things to know about God. And this is where grace really comes in. One, God is a healer. He's a healer. God can heal any level of brokenness. I've met many people in my life that have come to me at some point and said, and they find out I'm a pastor or a person of faith, they'll be like, well, God can never forgive me of this. Boom, I've done too much. I've gone past the line. I'm way too far. Done way too much. The scales, I can never do enough to get the scales back in my favor. And I want you to hear this. You thinking that you're too broken for God to fix you is thinking that your actions are bigger than God himself. God has been pouring healing back into this world since the moment sin first entered. Even when we reject it, push it away, call him nasty names, ignore him, and we blame him for the depths of hatred and pain that we create in this world, he still pours an overflow of healing into our lives and in our world. This is the heart of grace. It is healing. And I want you to then hear this. If he's a healer, then God is our Savior. He's our Savior. Our God not only pours healing into our world, he stepped into it himself and dealt with the ultimate penalty of our own brokenness and sin, which is death. Sin and brokenness brings about ultimate destruction, which is death. And God came as a man, Jesus, and he demonstrated the perfect character of God, and he willingly faced a physical death in order to experience our deepest fear and despair. You know what our, de- that our deepest fear and despair is death? That we, that we die, or someone dies close to us. And Jesus came, God came in the form of a man, faced that fear on our behalf. And yet he overcame that death and resurrected not just physically, but also to show us the spiritual resurrection you and I can experience through faith in him. This is grace. I'm broken. I can't fix myself. Our God is a healer, and his healing is the pathway of salvation, and he is our Savior. Grace is not learned, it's not mastered, or is it a prize to be won? It's ex- experienced through the admission of those first two and the acceptance of the last two. I'm broken, I can't fix myself, I admit that, and I accept the fact that God is a healer and God can heal me as my Savior. It's a beautiful gift of God, the gift of God that he has been holding out to you from the moment you were created. Receiving grace is allowing God to plant that seed in your heart for you to experience it, and then for you to grow roots and fruits in your life. And without grace, the brokenness in your life will spill over into every other relationship. It will impact your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, your work relationships, every word and deed. And this is important because these relationships will define us in our lives. And if they aren't rooted in grace, then the chance of anger, pain, resentment, bitterness, and hatred will grow with every argument and challenge. And here's the key idea on this seed I want you to grab. God will work in you in order to work through you 
to expand his hope and healing. That's grace. God will first work in you through grace and heal you to then allow you to be an instrument to bring hope and healing to other people. This is why grace is so important. I would love to just say, be a better dad, be a better husband, be a better wife, be a better employee. Be a... There's no better. We're broken. And without the grace of God, our brokenness can't be fixed. So if you're, in a, if you're in a marriage right now that is just falling apart, or you things at work, just always constantly, relationships going south to sour, things are not good with your kids or your parents or whatever it is, there's probably grace missing in that aspect somewhere. And you need it. We need it. In the grand scheme of things, this sounds great. Give me some of that, right? Give me that grace. Let me experience grace. So, well, I'll, I'll, And I'll show grace to others. And it would be great if I could just flip a magic switch and make that happen in my life and in your life. And while it may be easy to learn to be a recipient of grace, allowing grace to flow through you to others can be a quite arduous task. And this is why the roots that we need to grow to accomplish this are so important, and they're based on a key concept that we're going to see in the next part of this passage. The roots that we need are the roots of patience. You know what God ultimately has with each of us? Patience. Allowing us to journey into his grace. Now, when I think about patience, I usually think about having to stop and wait on something or someone. I think about it as patience as having something I have to do sometimes rather than something I need in my life on a regular basis. Somebody's late to a meeting or I've got to wait on a table at a restaurant. I made a reservation, but you still have to wait a few. No, I, you know, I, I don't want to wait. That's that patience. And I think it's something I have to do in this moment. Katie and I love to walk in the city all the time, and I figured out uh, when we are walking, it takes me 45 seconds to go a short block. It takes me one minute and 15 seconds to go a long block. So 10 blocks, 10 short blocks, is, and uh, I can do it in seven and a half minutes. So we figured this out like really quickly. And my enemy is the traffic lights, right? If they stop me, it throws my rhythm off. So I have to stop and wait. And, you know, you, we're all like this. If no car's coming, I'm, I'm going, I'm popping out, and I'll, I'll find my way across and, and so I'm trying to keep this pace. And I, and I think patience is like that. Like, I gotta, I'm in my spiritual life or I'm in this relationship. Something happens, stop. Got to wait on this other person to catch up with me or to deal with this problem before I can move forward. And that's just not the case. Because here's what Katie and I do on weekends. We actually intentionally walk a little slower. We look up the buildings around us. We take the city in. We walk together and experience a city on the weekends that some people dream their whole life about spending one weekend here. And this is what true patience is. It isn't looking at someone we need to show grace to and saying, I have to stop and let you catch up. Feel like I'm stuck at a traffic light waiting on you to get here as quick as you can. No, it's walking through relationships a little slower, knowing that it takes time and intent to see grace blossom in your life. Give you a key thought. Patient is best expressed by the willingness to give others time and space to experience grace. Time and space to experience. That takes slowing down. It takes slowing down and walking through a relationship. And this is what Paul 
says that how this plays out in key relationships of our life. One key thing that I want us to understand before we jump into the next passage is while Paul is going to use examples of marriage, parenting, and working environments, it doesn't mean that if you are not in these environments that these principles are not for you. While he's certainly going to give us some truth to be a better spouse, parent, child, etc., these principles he's going to share can be broadly used in any relationship. Today's not a marriage seminar, a parenting seminar, or how to be a better boss seminar. So if you aren't married and don't have kids or aren't working, it doesn't mean you get to tune out and ignore these. It means that we can grab these principles that he shares within the context and use it in any relationship in our life. He's going to give us three areas to be patient in. And the first one is this, to be patient as we grow intimacy with others. It's not just in a marriage, but he uses marriage as an example. And he uses one of the most feared and debated verses in all the Bible to share this. And verse 18 of chapter 3 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, before we look at the principle here, I want to address the misuse of this verse over time. Because this is, like I said, a very debated, that I, I know people that just flip past Colossians 3, like, I just don't want to read that. I will not deal with that, right? This verse is often taken out of context and used as an excuse for men to exercise undue authority over women. Many people have used and abused this verse for centuries, and in doing so have often devalued women in culture. There is nothing in this verse or the context of this verse that communicates that women are any less valuable, less gifted, or less important than men. This isn't a passage that sets a hierarchy in a relationship and eternally assigns a subordinate role to women. I actually believe instead it creates a beautiful picture of how intimacy really works in a relationship. What this verse is teaching us is that true intimacy requires two things. And they're both listed here, submission and love. And these two things feed off each other. Let me tell you what they are. Love, first, is a willingness to joyfully sacrifice for another person. While submission is the willingness to joyfully defer to another person. I love the fact that Paul puts these two ideas together. One, they are a beautiful recipe for a strong and healthy marriage, but they are also useful in any relationship. To show grace to another is to both sacrifice and defer for others. And the more I do one, the more I receive the other in return. In our marriage, as Katie and I, either one of us sacrificially love one another, it grows within us a willingness to defer our own preferences or desires for the betterment of a relationship because I'm experiencing sacrificial love. But also in our marriage, as Katie or I defer to one another, and allow another's preferences or desires to win out, then it grows the depth of our love for one another. As I see someone defer for something I want instead of what she wants. What, do we, grow, what we grow in here is intimacy and depth. But this takes time. Time to build the bonds of trust that your love for one another isn't some self-serving or consuming lust. That you aren't just being manipulative to get what you want. But instead, it is true sacrificial love and a true desire to see another person's experience joy and meaning. The truth is, you and I, if we ever have to demand from our spouse or really anyone to submit to you, then you're doing something wrong. You don't get to demand that. 
Submission isn't a right we get to exercise over others. It is a response to genuine love that we lavish on others. And the key thought is this. Intimacy is fueled by mutual desire for relational growth. Not by me telling you to submit or I'm going to get my way. I'm not going to love you unless you do this. It is intimacy is fueled by mutual desire for relational growth. It's not scorekeeping, who's a winning type of mentality, but it's a desire that you both are enjoying the journey along the way. In a marriage, in a friendship, and whatever it is. So having patience in growing in intimacy by being willing to both love sacrificially and defer preferentially to others. But there's a second way that we should be patient, and it's patient with our expectations of others. And with this, Paul uses the idea of parents and children. Verse 20 and 21 say this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And for many of us, we would love to plaster that on our kids' walls and say, Memorize this. Please, obey me. Father, and it says, Fathers, then don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Beautiful picture, right? If our children obey, I'll never get angry with them. I won't, I won't provoke them right? But what happens? They disobey. We provoke, which makes them disobey more, and we provoke more. Bad, bad cycle. But Paul, again, uses this couple of relational concepts that feed into each other in this context of a parent-child relationship, and the two concepts are trust and obedience. Trust is built on a commitment to allow righteous, true principles to guide our words and deeds. Trust is built on this commitment to allow things righteous and true principles to guide our words and deeds. Remember it says, do every word and deed as uh, if it was Christ. Like it is allowing that, it is modeling. We build trust with people when we model righteous behavior. And obedience is the willingness then to trust someone enough to allow them to lead you to righteousness and truth. There will be times in relationships when you grow frustrated because you feel like the other person just isn't getting it. They seem to be lagging behind, not willing to grow or go with you. And man, does this happen in parent-child relationships. We have these tiny humans that we're trying to grow into functioning adults, and we get frustrated when they don't do what we say. Don't they know that we have their best interest in mind? The truth is they probably don't, and that's the problem. As I look back on my parenting days, I'm still parenting adult kids, but when our kids were younger, I found in my own life and parenting the disobedience of my children was not con- as much connected to their stubbornness or their wickedness. Instead, it was connected to my inability to develop enough trust with them that they would believe what I say and follow it. I realized that my kids were disobeying because I hadn't given them a reason to trust me other than just saying I'm their dad because I said so. I was asking them not to get angry while I was still allowing anger to rule my life. I was asking them to be honest when I would still struggle with speaking the truth. I would tell them to forgive while I would model bitterness and anger toward others in front of them. And this is why Paul puts this section in this passage. It is a beautiful reminder for parents, but also all of us. We can put expectations on other people that we can't even live up to ourselves. And that leads to conflict, misunderstandings, frustration, and bitterness. But for a relationship to grow and grace to be experienced, we are, have to spend time building trust 
by us first holding firm to righteousness and truth and living that out in front of others so that they would trust us enough to follow us. Now, I'm not saying there's not times where you can't tell your kids, just do it because I said so. We're not going to have a theological argument every time we disagree, right? But when you see patterns, that's when you have to say there's a problem and starting to deal with the problem of the pattern. And the key idea is this. Think what we have to do. We have to lower your expectations of others and grow in your obedience to God. Lower your expectations of others and grow in your obedience to God. You learning to trust God will allow others to trust you more. The third way that we need to show patience is this, is patience with authority. I don't like this one. Verse 22 and, and verse 1 says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. These last two relational couplets are expressed through an example of a bondservant and a master. And we really don't have this relationship in our culture today. It, is often, it was often someone working off a debt for someone else and was bound to their service legally until that debt was paid. It was a relationship that could be taken advantage of very easily. And it is why Paul uses this example. How do we handle it when we are either under authority or have authority? How do we work through the challenges of being vulnerable to marginalization or in a position to marginalize others? And this can happen in any relationship. Parent, child, spouse, work, wherever. And this is why Paul gives us two more relational couplets to put together. And it's honesty and integrity. Hold true to these. Honesty is this. It is a deep and accurate connection between our words and our beliefs. What I actually believe is what I say. I don't change my words based on an environment or a person. This is a, when it says obey in everything. Live up to your commitments. Let your words be what you believe. Be honest in where you are and what you're going through. But integrity then is a deep and accurate connection between our beliefs and then our actions. What we do to people, our deeds. Right, this gets back to the core. Words and deeds. Do everything, all words and deeds, as if you are representing Christ. In relationships where one person is especially vulnerable to another, these two concepts are essential. And these two concepts can only be experienced with patience. You have to learn to trust each other, to believe that what we are saying to each other is honest and true, to believe that you and I will follow through on our commitments that we make to each other. And sometimes we will fail one another and need grace to continue to prove our intent. And the key idea is this. We've got to learn to give others the benefit of the doubt instead of finding reasons to doubt their intentions. We cut people off too quickly. We don't allow them to grow in honesty and integrity and become that and allow us to exercise authority or them to exercise authority in our life. And sometimes people do prove themselves to be habitually dishonest people, lacking in integrity, and it's okay to act on that fact as well. And this brings us to the fruit that shows up in our lives through the seed of grace and the roots of patience, and we'll end with this. With intimacy, patience with intimacy, expectations, and authority. Because it should ask us the question, why even do this? Why not just force others to submit to my will to get what I want? 
Why not demand perfect obedience to my desires, no matter if I display any level of self-control or growth in my life? Why not abuse people with the authority that I've been given or undermine those in authority over me if it helps my own cause? And the last part of verse 1 of chapter 4 reminds us, we strive for all these in relationships because why? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What I just described of taking advantage of people, doing whatever you want, not living by any of this, is that how you would want God to treat you? Impatient, demanding, manipulative. The beautiful thing about our master in heaven is that he is the perfect example of grace and patience in the relationships he has with us. And if we believe that we are his creation, each one of us, then we should strive to treat each other in the same way that he treats us. And this is with honor. Honor. The fruit of honor. Honor is a beautiful concept of finding value in someone or something else. When we live out of grace and we walk slowly with patience through relationships, then we begin to live with a view of honor toward one another. Not just trying to get through the crowd, to make our way forward, to push ahead, but instead to look up, see the faces of those around us, to walk with our family, to walk with our friends slowly through this life in a way that we can bring hope and healing and value to each other. This is exactly what God did with us. He didn't look down on us, waiting on us to mess up, to find a reason to remove his grace. He doesn't run out of, our, out of patience with us and leave us behind. No, he came and walked this earth with us. His spirit dwells within us and journeys with us every day. That is why I look at our world and what I see missing today is honor today. We too often live with the hope of bringing honor to only one person, and that's ourselves. We've created a self-promoting, self-honoring platforms that devalue everyone else because of the spotlight constantly trying to be put during honor to ourselves. However, there is really only one that is truly deserving of that spotlight. Of all honor and all praise, and it's God, the creator of the universe and the creator of you and me. God who is the author and source of all grace. God who is ever patient and kind, dispenser of forgiveness. God is the source of all hope and healing. And the key idea with honor is this, is that we honor God as we honor others in relationships. As we walk patiently through this life, growing intimacy, dealing with authority, connectivity, we honor God as we honor others. So this beautiful seed of grace produces the root of patience, which bears then for us the fruit of honor. So my question for you today is this. Will you honor God by showing grace, patience, and honor to others in your life? Because our God, our master in heaven, is worthy of every honor, every song, every praise for all of time. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? It's easy in a, a sermon like this to think about where other people are falling short in these moments, where somebody's not showing you grace, where somebody's not being patient with you, where you're experiencing marginalization of a bad authority. And while there are things we can do to deal with those, the thing we can deal with the most is where, when we fall short in those areas. 
So today, as we think about getting to a place where we can honor others, honoring God by honoring others in relationships, I want us to dig deep and to really ask ourselves, where is it that I'm withholding grace? What relationship am I just not allowing grace to flourish? Who have I stopped being patient with? Where am I so angry and bitter I just can't even look at them anymore? Where is it I I don't even think of the word honor. I don't want to even have this person's name in my head. Oh God, we need your grace. God, in our own lives to be our Savior, to heal us. But God, a lot to allow us to be healers in other relationships. God, we're broken. Every relationship we're in is broken because we're all sinful, selfish people at times. So God, would you allow us in these beautiful moments to remember who you are, this amazing, loving, graceful, patient creator who poured out everything for us, who has walked through every valley with us, and we can sing of your honor and your praise. But God, it should motivate us to change the way we deal with others as well. Let that be true of our lives today.